and welcome to a brand new audio-only podcast edition of Match Points here on TennisMajors.com. We are the pre-Wimbledon edition, and it is me and the former Wimbledon champion, Marion Bartoli, just you and I, head-to-head. Hope you're not nervous. I'm pretty sure you can handle yourself just fine. <laughs> I am nervous. Hi, Josh. You want to serve first? Yes. I have a really bad yes. serve those days, so please go ahead. No, you're good. You're good. We missed you last weekend at the Murata Blue Academy and Resort for the gala. For Yes, yes. It was a nice party, but your presence was missed. All right, let's get at it because we are just now a day and a half away from the beginning of Wimbledon 2022. It's historic for many reasons. There are many returns coming and streaks in line. There's a lot of storylines. But before we get to that, let's go human for just a second because you're one of those people that is less than one half of one half of one half of one half of one percent of tennis fans and players around the world. You've played there, you've won there. My question for you is, what is it like to play there at Wimbledon and how is it unlike any other event anywhere else in the world? Well, first of all, I have to admit that I'm a bit jealous because this year they have opened the center court to practice, which is definitely a first. Um, I think it's to celebrate the 100 years of the center court. Um, they have created that day when you can play on center court. And uh, I think everyone has saw Serena's post on, so- post on social media, and she was really exciting to be able to play on center court before the tournament starts. They did the same on court number one, but I didn't get that chance. So for me, my first on center court was when I played Justin Enna, of course, number one in the world at the time um, in the 2007 semifinal. And I can only tell you that my I felt my heart was going out of my chest when I took that walk from the locker room to, to the center court. Especially back then, I was in the downstairs locker room, not in the sort of premium luxury upstairs top seat locker room. So I definitely felt like, you know, the very much underdog going and try to play the number one player in the world on the center court of Wimbledon for the semifinal and, and maybe a place in the final of Wimbledon. So that was a lot on the line. And, um, I managed to win that first match. And I think from, from that day on, I just felt in love so much with that court. Um, you know, I always felt comfortable going there, whether I, I sometimes win or lose. I, I just felt, you know, for me to get a chance to take my racket back, make that walk that so many amazing legends of that game have been doing before me and just go on and have those two doors opening in front of you and you're about to enter that court. I just made my life um, so special. Paint that picture a little bit for these people, because now with the fact that we're just audio, they can really use their imaginations. For us watching at home, greens look greener, whites look brighter, and it just feels as if it's almost a religious experience to get to step out there and to play there. And I would imagine as a player, you know, you're always up and focused and locked in for your match. But this just feels like every point is that much more in every moment. It must smell different. The air must feel different. Please paint a little bit about how you just remember it just seemed like it it wasn't just tennis. This was another level. Had to. Yeah, I I think you painted so well. For me, what was really special, first of all, was the smell. It's really hard to explain, but for me, the smell of the grass was different on that court. I think it's probably because the way the center court is shaped um, and the way as well that, you know, all the people respect, even the, the, obviously the crowd, the audience respect that moment so much that you can hear literally a pin drop um, 
right before you're about to serve or right before you're about to return. So you're, I think your focus is so much higher than elsewhere that you can, your sense are, are a lot more alert than usual. And I remember vividly that I felt the smell of the balls, the smell of the grass was different. Um, when you go through that corridor and that walk, that path that takes you from the locker room to the courts, you go through a very thick um, carpet on the ground. That is the member's uh, area. And that thick carpet feels like you're almost walking on clouds. You know, you feel like you're, you're not even touching the earth anymore. And, and you're about to play on that sort of holy grail, um, court. So for me, it was the whole experience. It's something that it's so hard to describe, but the feeling it's every little second feels like an hour. And every little sensation is so much more than usual because I think your, your sense are so much more alert than usual that, that you feel every single emotion a lot more. Um, when you go through the trophy gallery, which is just before you enter the court and you see the champions board and you see those amazing names left and right, uh, written in, in golden letters and, and you dream one day to have your name engraved into that board, um, I don't know, it makes your focus just go that much more than usual. Um, that you definitely walk out of that court feeling that you just witness and experience something extremely special and you just don't want to go out of that court. Win or lose, you just don't want to go out. I remember when I had that silver plate and Venus won the 2007 title, I, I just didn't want to get out. <laughs> I was just, I just wanted to just stay there and suck in every single minute, um, just to remember forever. But, uh, yeah, it, it's, it's something very special and it's it's for sure something even more special to have your name engraved first of all into the rosewater uh, G's trophy forever and then the champions ball forever it's it's something that is very hard to explain but i think if you ask every single player who have the chance to win all four like serena or novak or roger or rafa or whoever else they will tell you that that one is that a tiny bit more special than elsewhere I would imagine it is. Um, it feels that way, certainly for viewers and fans, regardless. Uh, take me back for just a moment. As you were when you won this tournament, you talked about walking on that carpet. It's as though you're stepping on clouds. You see the champions board, you see those names. What do you recall specifically as you are about to make that walk prior to winning yourself that Wimbledon singles championship? What, what do you recall seeing and remembering in that moment? So I remember being into the lock, so the, the upstairs locker room, the member's locker room alone because I was, uh, Sabine was in the downstairs locker room. It was the final day. So we were just literally just the two players. So I was upstairs. She was downstairs. So I was alone. Um, with my iPad, putting my music on and not on, I mean, not into my headset because I was alone into the locker room. So I just put it in loudspeaker. Um, having my blister tape because I played that final with five blisters under my, um, my left foot. Um, and just talking to the physio, um, which back, back then was Victoria and, and she looked at my eyes and telling me, it's your moment. It's your day. You're not going to fail this time. And you just need a tiny bit of reinsurance because you're about to play the biggest match of your life. And you just need every single person, whether it's in your corner or just, you know, a physio that is into the locker room to just give you a little bit of reinsurance that is going to be your title. And obviously, Amelie Moresmo was in my box uh, that day. She won in 2006 and she looked at me saying, Marion, it's your day. You're not going to lose this match. 
And I took my bag and I was just so determined. And if you look at even the, when I see the video now and the tape of my match, even just the way I walk toward that course, you can see the determination and I was not afraid to go out there and compete. Um, which maybe for Sabine, it felt different because it was her first time. But I definitely felt very different for my first in 2007 when I, I really took the magnitude of that match straight to my face and it was a little bit too much for me to handle. In 2013, I just felt it was my moment. I worked so hard all my life to to have that trophy into my hand that I just couldn't let it slip away this time. And I just walk out there with, you know, the, sort of the eyes of the tiger. I just, I just knew it was my day. I just knew it. And, and nobody would take that trophy out of my hands. And it's, it's very rare that I had that feeling. And for me, it was, um, I don't know. I went through too much to, to let it slip that time. The name of this show is Match Points. And it's a play on words about different panelists making points and seeing if they match or if they argue and disagree. But what do you remember about the match point of that 2013 Wimbledon Singles Championship? It's match point. You see the scoreboard. You know where you are. What do you recall feeling in that point, in the moment that that point was decided? So I remember turning to the same ball kid, which was on my left, asking for that ball, but always on my left side. I remember looking at my box, looking at my father, almost telling him or sort of whispering him where I'm going to serve. Because when I was younger, all my, all my practices was finishing by that, you know, out wide serve on the left side of the court where I had to touch that little corner and that little box for 10 times until the practice was over. And I felt I was at nine points when I was 12, 13, 14 years old, and I had to have that one on the line to get my 10 points. But this time it was to win a grand sum. But for me, I had this sort of flashback in my youth when I was a child, and I played that moment to play the women you know, women and final championship points so many times in my head that this time I, I sort of came back to a childhood moment for a split of a second and then opened my eyes again, seeing Sabine in front of me, seeing where I wanted to serve and just go through the motion one last time and one more time and just hit the line. But it was so clear in my mind that I had this flashback of, you know, when I was younger and I, I was just dreaming to be one day on that court and have that opportunity. And here I was, you know, 15 years down the line, having that chance. And it's it's scary in a way that I had this flashback because you think you just want to stay in the moment, but that's how my brain worked at that time. It just took me back 15 years um, before that moment, dreaming as a little child to, to make it one day a reality. And I had my chance and it was right there right now. And I look at my dad and I say to him, look daddy at my serve. And then I, I start a motion and I haste right on the line. Right to finish a practice, but this time it was not a finish of practice. It was to leave the Wimbledon Champions Trophy. Unbelievable. That's remarkable. And I love that we're doing this for the audio-only portion because you can really, I mean, listening to this, you can close your eyes and you can imagine exactly what you're speaking of and you can use your imagination. I've got goosebumps uh, right now from just, because, because there is that, you know, your childhood and you've dreamt of, and you've practiced for, and then here it actually is really happening, and it was everything that you wanted, hoped, and dreamed of, and in a moment, that one day became day one. One day I'm going to, and now it's day one of being the champion of the 2013 Wimbledon Champion. Uh, thank you for that trip down. Now let's let's get to 
the 2022. Let's fast forward now nine years to here we are, okay, Mari? And, and we've got obviously headlines and breaking news, and that, of course, being the big story this week, ATP to test in-match coaching during the second half of this season, both verbal when your player's on that end of the court and nonverbal from regardless of the position. Now, our own founder of TennisMajors.com, Patrick Morataglou, he had a tweet this week that caused quite a stir. I will read it to you all. Patrick tweeted, quote, congratulations to the ATP for, quote, legalizing a practice that has been going on at almost every match for decades. No more hypocrisy, end quote. Immediately, well, within hours, Nick Kyrgios replied directly to our Patrick Morataglou. And Kyrgios said, quote, completely disagree. Loses one of the only unique traits that no other sport had. The player had to figure out things on his own. That was the beauty of it. What happens if a high-profile player versus a low-ranked player doesn't have or afford a coach? Okay, so Patrick said, listen, um, we're legalizing something that's been going on regardless. The hypocrisy is gone. Kyrgios goes a different direction and says, well, it takes away from I disagree with this. Do you agree with Nick Kyrgios at all in his stance that it takes away this unique aspect of the sport? Or would you say, no, no, it's about time that this got done? In some sort of way, I understand what Nick is trying to say. But on the other hand, I completely agree with what Patrick is saying, which is, you know, it has been going on for decades and you can hear, I'm, I've been doing a lot of courtside commentary lately at Ron Garros. And even when I was courtside, I could hear what the coaches were saying to their players. Obviously, when it was not in English, I couldn't understand, but I could clearly hear them talking to their players, which is obviously something that, you know, a lot of people has been doing. Then whether it's coaching or not, that's debatable. Um, sometimes it's encouraging words. Uh, sometimes it's reassuring words. When obviously you don't you don't understand the language, it's very hard to judge what exactly the coach is saying. But it's definitely there is an interaction between the players and the players' box during a match. I think it will be nonsense to say that there is absolutely zero interaction and the player is alone on the court. I I don't agree to that. But I like fairness as well, and I see the point of Nick saying, well, you know, you can have a very a wealthy or top-level player with a lot of people in their box. And if the coach is allowed to talk, then to someone as lower rank, they can't afford to travel with that big of a team, then it's a disadvantage. I see that point and I understand that point as well. Um, but for me, I don't think the, the valuable point to say that, you know, all the players has been standing alone on the court without any sort of helps from the player's box. I don't think this is a valid point. Um, but I think the ATP should find some sort of ways to make it equal to everybody. Um, and I don't have the answer to that question now or to to um, to that problem in a way, um, especially to, to some lower ranked player who can't afford or, or simply don't want to travel with such big of a squad. Um, but, you know, has, the WTA has been experiencing on-court coaching previous, uh, previously to COVID situation. And it was working quite well. And I think the fans were really interested to hear what... Um, the coaches has to say, then of course, once again, we had the language barrier, which I think was a little bit annoying sometimes. And you really want to understand what someone is saying, but then, you know, there is no translation and nothing like that. So I think that's okay. also something that we have to look at. But I don't know. Um, for me, I, I go totally with Patrick's point. Um, I yep. think it's, 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 it's great to, to go ahead and move forward. Um, 
but I, I understand Nick's, Nick's point of view as well. Yeah, no, I completely understand what you're saying. Here's what I don't understand. Why did tennis not allow for coaching in the first place? I can't think of another sport where that's the case. It doesn't seem to make sense. I have friends who fight in the UFC and who coach in the UFC. And I asked my friend who currently coaches some of the greatest fighters in the world yesterday. Can you imagine not being allowed to give your fighter instruction during the fight? And he said, that's ridiculous. I said, well, it happens in tennis. And most countries in the world have a legal system where if you cannot afford a defense attorney, one is provided to you. In the United States of America, one's provided. It's provided as part of the Constitution. So if you can't afford a coach or to travel with, tournaments can have top-level coaches that are available to give assistance to whomever it is that is playing that are unbiased and uninvolved with the outcome of the match. The idea of this is the way it's always been, to me, doesn't hold water. And the fact that what Patrick says is we're finally, quote, he put legalizing in quotes for a reason, because it is in a way sarcastically saying, you got, it's always happened, it's always gone on, you ignore it. So now instead of trying to enforce it, let's just get it out in the open. And normally when we do that, everybody, everybody benefits. It's normally for the common good when it's just, hey, everyone, we know what it is, here's what it is, and let's just deal with it as it is. I can't see a disadvantage for allowing coaches to coach players. And if you don't have a coach, well, then you can borrow one or you can still play it your way. I don't see a huge advantage of someone saying, move up, move back. I'm sorry, I think way too much goes into that because ultimately it's still the same size court. It's still the same height net. It's the same exact rules. What's the big deal? If it would be possible to sort of create a panel of coaches whom are available to some players on site um, in case they can't afford you know, to travel with a coach, I think that would be such a great option. Um, I do agree with you that anyway, a coach can do, you know, to a sort of limitation, can increase or can improve the level of his player to a certain degree. And at the end of the day, it's still the player who has to put in place whatever the coach is saying, if that actually is working as well, which is another subject. Um, but, you know, Roger Federer never been yep. the biggest fan of on-court coaching either. So I think you still have to get and to understand where the players are coming from. Um, but I'm definitely for the innovation. I'm for moving forward with tennis. I think we have been great at sort of keeping the rules as as they are for the scoring. I think this is a fight we still have to go for because a lot of people want to change the scoring system and I'm totally against but in terms of moving forward for the other rules, absolutely. I mean, we, we have to be um, with our time. And as, as you said, it's been going on forever. Yep. And I don't think at the end of the day, yep. it was massively changed the outcome results of so many matches during the year. Correct. Correct. Um, Todd Woodbridge, former player and broadcaster, quote tweeted our Patrick Murataglou and said, quote, this is so disappointing to see that such a high profile coach blatantly admits that he has broken the rules of our sport for so long. Um, I, in return, replied to Todd Woodbridge. <laughs> and I want to share that with this audience. I, I, want, I, I want to share that with the audience. I replied to Todd and said, quote, I'm not certain that you are correctly reading and comprehending Patrick Muratoglu's statement. He's saying it has existed. He never said that he wanted it to. Truths are often inconvenient and unflattering, Todd, but that doesn't make them any less true. For this man, Todd Woodbridge, to jump on Patrick and say, so disappointing, high-profile coach, blatantly admitting he has broken the rules of our sport. Patrick never admitted he broke the rules. He said, congratulations on eliminating the hypocrisy. Sounds like Mr. Woodbridge has a personal 
agenda with our own Patrick Maratoglu. And really, it was very poorly veiled, poorly disguised in this tweet because you're really reaching when you're claiming someone's admitting blatantly breaking rules when all they said was congratulations to um, finally allow for something that's gone on. Whether you like it or not, Marian, you know, the truth is the truth, inconvenient or otherwise. Just because you don't like it, just because you don't want it to be true, doesn't take away from the fact that it already is. And let's be honest, there's been coaching on court for decades you're and right, decades. You're Am right, you're right. But I think Todd wanted to sort of refer um, to the moment, and I think it was actually tweeted back in sort of the picture when um, Pat, I mean Serena got a warning for coaching during her final of the US yes. Open against Naomi. Um, yep. And that was the whole point of, I think, Todd's tweet. But knowing Todd, I, I don't think he's a sort of, you know, someone that will go over on Twitter and, and just want to, you know, go hard on somebody. I think he just wanted to, you know, maybe go with the point across of saying, you know, like Nick Kyrgios in a way, I'm against coaching. I don't want to have coaching. It's disappointing from someone like Patrick to say that, you know, he's sort of happy that this rule is going through. I'm not sure. I will see him at Wimbledon. I will ask for him. But for the global overall point, um, my point of view is absolutely to move forward and, and to do not get stuck with what we used to do before. Um, and yeah. moving, and as you said, moving forward, if we need to make it equal to have a panel of coaching, maybe five to 10, who am available, you know, in tournaments, um, we can start like Mace, you know, you can put a ATP 250, maybe three coaches, ATP 500, maybe more, ATP 1000, even more. Um, and then those are available for coaching at any sort of time because they don't have, you know, any interest in the outcome results. I think that that should fix the whole fairness problem. Absolutely. And, and it levels the playing field. And first of all, you know, coaches being allowed to coach, it's going to add an element to the broadcast. It's going to add an element for those in attendance. It's, it's, another, it's another aspect that, I mean, if it's happening anyway, the idea is allow it to be out in the open so we're not pretending under some sham that's being enforced because that's not the case. All right, let's move along, Marian Bartoli. Uh, Serena Williams' return is without question the advanced story of this Wimbledon 2022, this 100th celebratory, as you said earlier. What do you expect for and what do you expect from Serena's return? Um, both, you know, for meaning how the reception is, how the perception is, and then actually the on-court play. What are your expectations for, in full disclosure, our friend, Serena Williams? I think for me on the woman's side, the two biggest story are going to be Emara Ducanu and Serena Williams, by far. Um, I think Iga will sort of fly under the radar in the, into the first week and see, you know, if she starts to go into deeper into the tournament, she will probably start to make the headlines Beginning of second week, from my point of view, I think the first week is all going to be about Emma and Serena. I think for Serena, I was, I really wanted to see her play that doubles, um, in his board with Angeber. I was so tuned in for her first match. It was such a tight one, but to see her again, so eager to win and, and try to find solution. It was not an easy match for them. Uh, they went out to see her spirit after everything she has won. Um, is incredible to me. And she has this desire to just, you know, win every time she's on the court. And you would think maybe she just wants to ease herself, find some momentum, find some form before Wimbledon. She just went into Eastbourne, wanted to win the title there in doubles. And, and that mentality is for me what set her apart. I think she has a decent draw, but I, I really, I'm not the kind of person who wants to draw off an opponent. I will never do that. I think we, we, 
absolutely have to show respect to anyone who is facing Serena. And we just can't go and say, oh, yeah, that's an easy first round. That's not the kind of person I am. So I think, and Serena is not as well either. So if for her, it's, it's to find that momentum again. If she finds some momentum, if she finds some form, if she's able to get herself going and she go through that first week with, you know, decent scores, not losing too much energy, she has absolutely a chance. Um, I think all the players know it in the locker room. When Serena get going and she finds some momentum, she's so hard to stop. And I think because she had those sort of setbacks with all those injuries, if, and of course, that's a big if, she gets to the final, I don't think she will feel that amount of pressure that she has been felt um, in the past Wimbledon final that she lost, um, you know, as everyone I've been yeah. able to see when she was really feeling the pressure and, and not able to, not being able to play at her best level. Um, but yep. that's a big if, and we are not there. She's playing a French player in the first round. She's playing Armonitan, um, someone that you know, likes to play on grass. She likes to have a lot of balls in her hip high. She likes the pace. Of course, it's a lot on Serena's hand, but I once again, I don't want to draw off any opponents. Um, she will play against oh. someone who is there to win as well. Um, and it's going to be, it's going to be fascinating to see Serena's return, but you know, I can't wait to be in the commentary booth and commentate that match. Um, for me, that's going to be really the highlight of my day if I have the chance to do that. Yeah, I, I agree with you. Um, we have a tendency in sports as fans and broadcasters alike. There's an energy and a vibe, and you know it very well. And when champions start to become champions, everyone's on board. And when champions reach that pinnacle and become great, there is still that but then there turns a tide where we're almost tired of someone being so good, so dominant. And we saw this, I think it was at Wimbledon, I want to say 2014, maybe 2015, in which there were cheers when Serena were hitting balls. She had a remarkable comeback in, I want to say, the quarterfinals. And I remember who it was against exactly. But she started then to talk to the chair umpire in regards to these people are cheering um, at the wrong time. And there's great disrespect. And she's taking this personally. Um, and you know how this goes. It's not uniquely American, although Americans are very bad with this, but it is a global thing. And now we have Serena, who had to leave early last year. We haven't seen play since at Wimbledon. I think this is going to be a welcome home party for her. I think she's going to be overwhelmed with, with the response and the love and the cheers. I think you may see tears in her eyes as she returns to that court, not knowing if she was ever going to. I think she's going to be surprised by the love that she receives. And it's almost going to be treated is an underdog. In fact, if you check the betting odds, Serena Williams is listed at plus 1,500 to win this tournament, which means 100 would get you back $1,500. Um, she's a very long shot in this spot. I'm expecting there to be enormous love and attention and affection for her. She, as you know, she has that presence when she's in the building, when she's on that court where it's all eyes on her. As far as her play, let's remember, this is the first time she's playing with a new coach. The familiarity, and Serena very much a creature of habit like most of us, but even maybe more so, familiarity. This is her first time with a new coach under new circumstances. So the love and the fact that it is a major, of a major tournament plays to her benefit. But the fact that she doesn't have that familiarity with coaching and camp, that obviously is the downside of that. Um, what would you consider to be a successful Wimbledon for Serena Williams? And remember, she's listed at plus 1,500 to win the tournament, so that would be a fairy tale come true. But what would you consider to be a successful tournament? She's returned and she'll be 41 in September. 
no matter what she tells you. She'll be 41 in September. Um, I, w I saw her last month and she said, no, no, I'm 33. I said, Serena, stop it. Um, what would you consider to be a successful tournament for her? Well, first of all, to come back to your point, I totally agree with you. I think the dynamic will be extremely different this year and I think she will get the whole crowd for her and rooting for her. I think they want that fairy tale story to go all the way, such as, as we yep. want to see her just, you know, going against the odds and then just making it happen. Um, and definitely, I, I can recall years, especially when I was still playing, in 2013 when Sabine beat her on center court, she had, she had the stadium against her. And, and they were absolutely rooting for, for Sabine because they, they saw Serena just being so dominant the year before, winning Wimbledon and yep. winning the Olympics, that they wanted to see, you know, someone who can challenge her in a way. Um, it's really hard to say that Serena's tournament will be a success without winning. This is a problem because she has won so many things that if I say, for example, quarterfinal, which is such a good result for her, she will look at it like, you know, terribly disappointing results. So it's it's really hard to answer to your question. For me, as a broadcaster, as a pendant, um, knowing her, I would say semi-final would be incredible. But I know if she doesn't get the, the gold played, she would be so disappointing. So I think she's entering that tournament to get to get the champion's trophy. Um, I remember one year, actually, when she lost in the final to Angelic Kerber. She, ref mm -hmm. she let the silver plate into the locker room. She didn't even mm -hmm. walk out with it. She just left it there. And you had the, the people from Wimbledon, from the club, saying, Serena, you sure you don't want a trophy? I mean, for a love player, just to have the runner-up Wimbledon trophy would be a dream. And she just left it there like it was, you know, a cup of your local tournament. Of course, but of course, but but we're not going to we're not going to confuse what she would consider a success with what we would define as a success. Because you and I both know, for her, it's not successful unless she becomes champion. I'm with you on the quarterfinal if that's a good spot. If Serena Williams plays in the quarterfinal, I think you have to say this is a woman coming back after a year off with these injuries, and she's 40. And Venus made it seem mundane, and Serena did as well. 40. Almost 41 years of age with a year off as a mother now, um, quarterfinal, Wimbledon, that would be, very, to me, that'd be a tremendous success. You can't mark that as anything less than a success. Yeah, I agree with you. I agree with you. As, as an analysis of tennis, I totally agree with you. But knowing Serena, yeah. I know she would be mighty disappointed. But, but as, yes. an, as, as an analysis of tennis, absolutely quarterfinal, hats off to her. She goes out, um, to that stage of the tournament. All right, let's move on to the women's side. Let's stay. Iga Svantec, we know this streak is remarkable. Can it continue at this Wimbledon? And, and you, you know, you talk about some of the pressure maybe being off of her because of Serena's return. The longer Serena's around, the more it may benefit Iga in regards to uh, flying under that radar you spoke of. Who can most challenge her right now, do you believe? Um, not necessarily because of the draw, just overall. Who do you believe could most challenge for this, for this streak, perhaps, potentially, to come to an end? Well, you have to look at the players who have been able to perform on grass. Um, it's as simple as this. So Petra Kvitova just won again in Eastbourne. Funny enough, I was playing her 11 years ago in the final of Eastbourne <laughs> in 2011. So I, I mean, I admire her longevity so much. Um, so Petra is always a danger. I mean, she won two times um, outside of Serena. That's probably the one who has won the most women um, in the draw. Okay. 
So you have to go with Petra Kvitova. Caroline Garcia has been gaining some form again. She won the title in, in Bad Amberg, uh, beating Bianca Andreescu, who is as well starting to get back some form, who is someone who was being able to win a Grand Slam before. So you have to look at players who have had great results in the past and have gaining some form, some form lately and could do it. Um, so for me, I would go with Bianca Andreescu, Petra Kvitova, um, Serena, if she start to get some form, that's probably the three names I can get on the top of my head. And Anjabur, yeah. um, because with her game style and her, you know, unique style to be able to move the ball around on grass, sneak into the net, the confidence she's having. She won the title in Berlin. She played in doubles with Serena, which I think for her was an incredible experience and definitely something she will remember for her, for all her life. Um, you know, she she played really well last year. She can absolutely be extremely dangerous. So if I had to spot on three names, I would say Bianca, Petra, and Ons. And as a joker, Karin Garcia, who can make some damage. Love it. Love it. Simona and Coco are both currently, before the tournament begins, plus 800. Eight to one underdogs to win the tournament. Actually, not underdogs. Pretty close to favorites. Um, both of them have ties to our Patrick Muratoglu, Simona being coached by Patrick now, Coco coming through Muratoglu Academy, Champsy Foundation. They're both at plus 800. Who do you think would go deeper between the two? I think Coco because she's younger and, and she just got her first final in a Grand Slam and I think she's riding that wave of confidence. And, you know, I made that encore interview with her in Roland Garros, which was so fresh and you know, so special for me because she reminded me that actually I sent an autograph of her to her when I played the 2012 US Open. And so uh, I remember actually now vividly what happened. So I was just before the US Open started, it was um, Arturash Kids Day. So the whole stadium was open to the audience to watch the practice. And I had a bunch of kids just watching my practice and I, I really wanted to sign an autograph for all of them. So no one will left disappointed. So I sent for all of them and she was one of that kid in that audience that day. Um, so that side wow. apart, I, I think she has, she had enough amazing memory. I mean, we all remember when she beat Venus on that court a few years back. Um, she's a great athlete. She moves so well. Um, she just made a final for Grand Slam. I think she has the whole momentum going for her. Simona, of course, has been an incredible champion. She won there before, but I think oh. you can see physically it's a little bit more difficult for her now. And totally, once again, you can understand that after all those years she has played. Um, it's a little bit tougher to to just track the matches one after the other one. So if I have to pick one, just based on the youth and based on the momentum, I would go a little bit more with Coco. All right, let's move over quickly now to the men's side. All things considered, what are Rafa's honest chances for a third consecutive major championship and number 23? He's plus 650 behind only Novak Djokovic and uh, Berrettini, who's at plus 500. But keep in mind, Rafa hasn't won at Wimbledon, I believe, since 2010. So realistically, what are his chances here? He's the third shortest odds to win it all, but a lot of that has to do with what he's done so far this year and, of course, being Rafa Nadal. What are his honest chances? Well, you know, I think if when we had that uh, that podcast just before the Australian Open, we would have, I mean, we didn't, all of us, give him a lot of chances, <laughs> anyone there. Mm-hmm. I think for Ron Garros, with everything that happened in Rome, not all of us was was giving him a chance, anyone again. So I just want to, to do not write him off because he's going to surprise us once again. And I just don't want to be like that stupid pendant who, who just thought that, you know, she had the right answer and definitely didn't. Um, so you can never, absolutely never 
writing Muff. I think um, it's obviously he has a tougher draw. We all know it this time. Um, you know, Novak looks to have, and again, it's only on paper, um, something slightly more, um, you know, easier for him. But you can never write him off. And I think as long as he's Rafael, I think he's as long as he's going and stepping on the court, he goes there because he knows and he thinks he has a chance to go and win the title. So I think out of respect and for everything he has been doing, you have to give him the full chance to go and win and win that title. And speaking of no of Novak Djokovic, he is the only player on either the men's or women's side to have a minus sign in front of his betting number, meaning he's actually favored, which is remarkable because you're talking about such a large field for someone to be a favorite. He's minus 130, so a slim favorite, but still, he's still, you have to risk more than you would win for him. Does he deserve, does Novak Djokovic right now deserve, all things considered in the year it's been, to be a minus 130 favorite to win it all? Does he deserve to be a favorite at minus 130? Well, I've never been a very good understander of all those bets and all those. <laughs> I, I mean, I don't know. But uh, I'm okay. just trying to analyze this on the tennis part, which is something that is more my my forte in a way. Sure. Um, he had he has found for me enough momentum um, through the clay to get going and and really go and win the title for sure at Wimbledon. All things considered, um, I think. For him, in a way, the first few matches are the toughest because he knows for sure he's the favorite. He knows, obviously, all the, the title he has been able to win in a row. And and you just don't want to arrive with that little too much confidence that, you know, you're not on the edge enough, in a way. And you're a little bit too relaxed, which I don't think he is. But, you know, for me, I'm going to very much looking forward to his first few matches to see his concentration level to see how he moves on the grass. We all know the grass is more slippery during that first week uh, before it get wear down and, and it's a little bit easier to play in the second week. So that first week is tricky and dangerous, especially when you're overwhelmed favorite. Um, so all things considered, especially once again with this trauma of the Australian Open, um, there is still a question mark in his participation of the US Open this year and a major question mark of his participation of the Australian Open next year. So he knows if he has to win one, it's that one. And that amount of pressure is just compiling on his shoulder. And of course, with everything he has been able to do in the past, he can handle it. But at the end of the day, he's still another human being just like us. And, and yeah. you know, I, I just hope it's not going to be a little too much for, for him. We will see. Um, but to put him as a favorite, absolutely, yes. Yeah, but being a minus one thirty favorite for for the for the folks listening, basically what that means is you could either get everybody else in the men's draw, or you could bet Novak Djokovic. So you get all of those other options to win it, or just Novak. That's the minus one thirty separating being that it's you versus everybody else. And I'd I'd be prone to probably take everybody else just in case, like you said, stranger things have happened. Last question here. Last question here. Give us a player to keep an eye on, both on the men's and women's side. Someone that you think might surprise people, that you think, you know what? I think people will be surprised with their play, um, for better or for worse. Maureen Bartoli, one from the men's side, one from the women's side. Who you got? I don't think it's a surprise, but I would go with, with Berrettini because he has been off the radar since the beginning mm -hmm. of the year due mm -hmm. to his injury. Um, and, I mean, it has been incredible to see him just coming back and winning back-to-back -back titles. Um, and just getting that confidence so quickly on that surface. So definitely someone to watch for. Um, it's not like yeah. a, a name that is completely <laughs> unknown, but it's it's for sure not someone you would put as, you know, 
he's going to go and win the title like that, but he can ab- absolutely do it. He's the second favorite. He's the second favorite at plus 500. He's second only to Djokovic to win it all. So, yeah. Uh, on the woman's set, as every time it's not more open, <clears throat> I will go with Adan Maya. Okay. <clears throat> Just because she won an incredible streak of, of matches on grass, back to buy titles, even in some weeks winning in singles and in doubles. She just lost in the semifinal of Eastbourne against Petra Gvitova, the, the eventual winner. And I think it's someone that is definitely not very well known for the common public. And she can make some, she can surprise you and, and have a deep run. This is, I, I lied when I said last question because this one is, it just came to my mind and there's very few people living or dead who could ever answer it, but you are one of them. Finish this sentence. Fill in the blank for me. The greatest part, the greatest part about becoming a Wimbledon singles champion is blank. The greatest part about being a Wimbledon singles champion is blank. How would you finish that sentence? Being a member of the All England Lone Tennis Club forever. (laughs) Amen. Well said. Well said. All righty. Um, listen, this was fun, you and I. We don't need the others. No, I said we definitely. Give, I we can just make the show to us. We're going to fire everybody else. Sorry. Sorry, Ben. Sorry, Carol. Uh, sorry, Simon. It's just uh, Marion and I now. All kidding aside, we thank everyone for listening. Remember, go to tennismajor.com to read up on all of the insight and analysis and all the video and all the different shows. And of course, we'll have a video edition podcast with the rest of the panel if Marion and I decide to hire them back um, as Wimbledon continues to. Uh, on behalf of Marion Bartoli, Josh Cohen saying thanks for listening. We will catch you next time for more match points here on tennismajors.com.